Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Desire the unadulterated milk of the word, like a newborn baby, that you may grow thereby. His divine power has given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption of the world through lust. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. Before we open God's word this morning, let's bow our heads and go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we are so grateful that we can come together to focus upon your word. We recognize that in this world that there are very few places where Christians can truly feed upon the word that you have revealed to us, that it is by your word that we grow. It is by your word that we are sanctified. It is by your word that we are edified and that we are comforted. And, Father, we are so thankful that we live in a time when each one of us can possess our own copy, in many cases multiple copies and translations of Scripture, and that we might honor that and recognize what a privilege that is throughout the history of the church. So, Father, we pray that we might not take your word lightly, that we might not take it for granted, that we have opportunities to study and to learn and to grow, and that we might desire to glorify you in every area of our life as a result of our spiritual growth through your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, and we are going to uh, continue our study in Ephesians 4. And the topic that we see in this next verse, in verse 12, is the purpose of the meeting of the church. Now, why is it that God has ordained the meeting of the local church? And what do we mean by the meeting of the local church? I think the meeting of the local church is any time that a local church, the members of a local church, come together in order to pray and study the scriptures. That's a meeting of the local church. It's not just what happens on Sunday here. It is what happens also on Tuesday night and Thursday night. We come together to focus upon what God has revealed to us that we might learn to think as God would have us to think to have the values that God has instilled within the creation so that we might learn to live in harmony with the way things are and not the way sinful men often think that they should be. The meeting of the church, therefore, should have the highest priority in the life of every believer. For it is through the teaching of the word in the company of other believers that we are encouraged and strengthened and that God uses that in order to develop us. And that is exactly what 
Paul is emphasizing in this section of Ephesians 4. I want to turn your attention to the last two verses of this section because that brings this together in a, in a distinctive focus. He says, uh, but speaking the truth in love, that's the focal point of the teaching ministry of the pulpit, speaking the truth. Now, a lot of people don't like truth. A lot of people go to church because they want to have their ideas and their values and their opinions and their lifestyle validated by what comes out of the pulpit. The last thing they want to hear is for anybody to say that they are uh, they have wrong values or that their thinking is wrong, the way in which they think is wrong, that the way their lifestyle is led is wrong. They just want God to be like a big Santa Claus up in heaven who's going to validate everything that they say and then give them Christmas presents. Uh, but that's not what the Scripture says. We're to speak the truth in love, uh, not in condemnation, not in a judgmental attitude, but on the basis of the truth, then, we grow. And he goes on to say uh, that we may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. So it focuses on growing into Christ, and I take that as conforming, being conformed to his image, which is what Romans 8.29 focuses on. But then notice what verse 16 says, from whom the whole body... Now, that's not just the body of believers that meets at West Houston Bible Church. That's the whole body of Christ that is the universal body of Christ that is composed of all those who are already uh, face-to-face with the Lord, those who are alive today, anyone who has trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior, whether they are walking with the Lord or not. That's the body of Christ. And it is from whom that is from Christ, the whole body, joined and knit together. Notice the focus on the importance of the body of Christ here, that they are joined and knit together by what every joint supplies. Now, in this analogy, what every joint supplies is what every individual believer brings to the body of Christ in his ministry to the body of Christ. That's very important for an understanding of things in this passage because it shows that it's the focal point is on all the saints. It's on all the believers in Christ. It is not for some special group within uh, the body of Christ, but for it's important for every joint in terms of what each individual supplies to the whole, the universal body of Christ. And then he goes on to say, according to the effective working by which every part does its share. Notice the emphasis again. Every part is every individual believer. Every believer in Christ in a local assembly or in uh, the universal body of Christ has a significant role to play in relation to the whole body of Christ. So we have an emphasis in Ephesians on the corporate entity of the body of Christ, but that is not at the exclusion of the significance of each individual. Uh, So each individual has a role, and the oneness of the body of Christ has a role. Now, we'll cover a number of things when we get there, but that is a, a great illustration 
of a philosophical principle called unity in diversity, and sometimes it's referred to as the one and the many. The one would be the body of Christ, the corporate entity of the body of Christ, and the many would be all of the individual parts. Now, that has a significant impact on how the uh, founding fathers of the United States understood uh, how the social makeup of a nation was to function. On the one hand, you have the oneness of the nation, and on the other hand, you had the parts. If you overemphasize the one, then you end up with what they have in Russia with a totalitarian government where what matters is what the government dictates for the whole. If you overemphasize the parts, you end up with anarchy because every part becomes autonomous, and that's, you get what happened in the period of the judges as we're studying on Tuesday night because every, everyone does what's right in their own eyes. So it just leads to the fragmentation of a culture and a fragmentation of society, and we see a lot of that going on right now in this country because the body of Christ and the impact of Christianity has been lost because of what has happened in the schools and what has happened in education and because of what has happened in the pulpits. And so we've lost this concept that was very much a part of the understanding of the average American citizen for the first 200 years of our existence. I'm talking about the colonial period up through uh, near the end of the 1800s. Uh, that would be approximately 300 years. But that, that formed their foundation. And so every part does its share. Notice the emphasis on the first divine institution of individual responsibility. The individual does not say, oh, I'm just going to let everybody else do the work and I'm going to benefit from it. That's basically what happens in communism and socialism. That's why both communism and socialism are both uh, philosophical and political ideas that are hostile to biblical Christianity. So every part does its share. Every part has its responsibility. And then Paul says, causes growth of the body uh, for the edifying of itself in love. And we see how love brackets these two, two verses. So the reason I went to the end, sometimes you have to go to the end in order to see where, where Paul is going, where we're going to end up. And, and this is uh, very important. So as we have been uh, looking at this passage, Ephesians 4, 11, and 12, he himself, in verse 11, refers to Christ. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, as we read it in the New King James Version, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And so we spent a lot of time studying especially the role of pastors. What does the Bible teach about the role of a pastor? And we went back and we looked at the Old Testament and came to understand that the role of a literal shepherd was to lead, guide, direct, provide for, and take care of the sheep that were entrusted to him. And when we got into the New Testament, 
or, or excuse me, one other factor was that this was applied metaphorically to spiritual leaders as well as political leaders, as we looked at passages in Jeremiah as well as Ezekiel, and that God brought condemnation upon those who failed in their responsibilities as leaders and in taking care of the spiritual life of the people, whether that was um, uh, whether that was politically or whether that was was spiritually. And so we come out of the Old Testament that the meaning of this concept of a pastor, a pastor shepherd, is grounded in the idea of providing nourishment and leading, and the leading is through that nourishment which comes from the Word of God. When we got to the New Testament, we realized that nothing really changes. Jesus Christ is considered to be the shepherd and teacher for his church. He is the ultimate shepherd, and pastors in local congregations are simply uh, simply under shepherds. But we see this pattern again, that it is a leadership gift. The idea of pastoring, it focuses on leadership and direction, and that part of that responsibility, the major part of it, is to provide nourishment, whether it's literal water and food, or whether it's the food of the Word of God, spiritually speaking. So the primary role is leadership and feeding the sheep. And we saw that in Jesus' conversation with Peter in John chapter 20, verses 15 to 17, three times Jesus says, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And the Lord said, feed my sheep. He used different words for feeding and different words for sheep to indicate that it involved teaching the lambs, teaching the older sheep, and different ways in which that was communicated in terms of simple food to more complex food. And so the mission given is uh, stated there that the, the pastor, the apostle, the evangelist, uh, these are to feed the sheep. That's the primary primary mission. And so when we came to that last phrase, we took a lot of time to study the intricacies of the grammar to help understand what is going on here and the fact that there are internal uh, structures in the Greek that is uh, translated as some, which in the passage of Ephesians 4.11, you have this setting apart four categories, apostles, then prophets, then evangelists, but there's only one Greek word, de, before um, pastor, teacher, indicating they were to be understood as a closely connected group. There's a spiritual gift of teacher, but in the other passages that talk about spiritual gifts, there's no autonomous spiritual gift of pastor that this is the only time the noun is used, and it is used in connection with teaching, telling us that the way in which the feeding and nourishing is accomplished is through teaching, and it is teaching the Word of God. And that which distinguishes pastor, a pastor-teacher from a teacher has to do with the leadership role and uh, his responsibility uh, for the congregation. So we learn from that that not all teachers are pastors, but all pastors are to be teachers. And a pastor who is not a teacher, in other words, a pastor who is simply a motivator, an exhorter, uh, someone who is entertaining, is not a pastor at all. And he is a fake pastor. 
and that nobody can can grow as a result of that uh, false view of the ministry. And so we concluded that the pastor feeds the sheep through the teaching of the Word of God, the whole counsel of God. And I'm reminded of a conversation that was reported to me uh, involving uh, uh, some, someone who didn't know anything about me or my ministry and asked, uh, well, what, w- what I was teaching. And the response was, well, I, he's teaching judges on Tuesday night. And his response was, well, well, why do we need that? That's for Israel. And unfortunately, that's a commonly held view by a lot of people. But we are to teach the whole counsel of God. That means everything from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21. It is the whole counsel of God, and it covers, uh, covers everything. So what is the purpose then for the pastoral ministry? What we saw in Ephesians 4-11 is apostles were a temporary gift that was limited to the first century, and when the apostle John died, there were no longer any uh, apostles in that key sense of those who were the primary foundation of the body of Christ, the church. Prophets were also indicated to be a temporary gift, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that the gift of prophecy was to be abolished, and that is abolished when the canon of Scripture was completed. There was no longer any need for extra-biblical uh, revelation. But the gifts of evangelist and the pastor teacher, those gifted individuals, are to train the church. And that's what we get to when we come to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12. Now, this is a very interesting verse, and it is one that a lot of people think they understand when they read it. And I will tell you that without any arrogance that you don't, and I didn't, until you really break it down. This is complex. And I went through, and I have a whole page. I'm not using it all. I just created these notes for myself of about 12 different translations. We're going to look at a couple of them, but it's interesting how different translations have understood the structure of this verse in the Greek, and it's very important because it it, it impacts different things. So the verse says, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And it will go on into verse uh, 13, but uh, for right now, we're just going to look at verse 12. So as we look at this verse, it seems to make sense when we look at it in the English, and it does to a certain degree. But there's one thing there that you don't find in the original language at all. Can anybody tell me? Think about it. What do you see in that English translation that would not have appeared in the Greek at all? The comma. Now, that comma is important in terms of the way the translator sees the thought that is expressed in this verse. But there's no comma. So a comma, anytime you see a comma in Scripture, it's always a tool that the translator is using to try to clarify what he thinks that verse is saying. So we have a comma there uh, at the end of where it says, for the work of ministry, 
So in the New King James Version, it looks like the first part is all considered one thought, for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. And then secondarily, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now, when you look at this, you see that there are these three English words for. What it looks like is that they would be equivalent to each other. And if you think that, you would be wrong. But there's a history for why people handled it that way, and we'll get to that. But before we get to understanding how these three prepositional phrases relate to each other, and that's very important, uh, we have to look at the main words equipping, ministry, and edifying. So what we'll learn is that in the Greek, there are actually two different words that are used for these prepositions that are all translated in the New King James with the English word for. The first one is a different word, and then the second and third one are the same Greek word, but it indicates a different way in which these phrases are to be related to one another. And as a result of that, you'll see that there are different ways in which this is punctuated, and the punctuation aren't consistent either between the translations. So what I've concluded, and we'll see when I get to the end, is that perhaps the best way to understand this is with a little bit of an expanded paraphrase in order to understand uh, the significance here. So what I want to do initially is to look at the three key words in each of these phrases, the word equipping, the word ministry, and the word uh, edifying. So we'll stop, and uh, as we look at this, we're going to start with the equipping of the saints. Now, the equipping of the saints is this Greek word in the box, katartismos, and it basically has the idea of training or equipping, and in at least one commentary, the commentators suggested the word preparation, which is certainly a good word for training. What training does is it prepares you for something. I would use the word, and I prefer the word training to preparation because that's the focal point is, is the process of the preparation. This is the only new uh, book, uh, excuse me, the only verse in the New Testament that uses this noun. The verb is used some 13 times in the New Testament, and the problem with the, with the King James or the authorized version is that it translates this as the perfection of the saints. And when you read the word perfection in English, you often think of something that's sinless or something that's flawless, but that's not only is that not present in this Greek word katartismos, it's not even present in most of the pa- passages that use the word uh, perfect, and we'll discover that that's uh, used here in verse 13, uh, that we are to come to a perfect man, and that's, again, a poor, poor understanding and poor translation. To get an idea of this, idea of training, I put in here the Oxford English Dictionary uh, definition of training, and that is to teach a person a skill or a type of behavior through regular practice or instruction. 
if you've if you've taken dance lessons, if you've taken lessons on a musical instrument, if you have uh, learned any kind of skill, whether it is working with machines or whether it is something physical, something athletic, you know that it takes a lot of repetition and that you have to practice it a lot in order to master it. So you first have to learn certain things and then you have to put those things into practice, and then you'll come back and learn some more things and refine it, and that's just the process uh, that we all go through as we are trained to do whatever it is uh, that we are involved in. So that's a key idea in katartismas. Now, the root word is the A-R-T-I in the center of the word, the kata at the beginning is a Greek preposition that is put as a prefix for an emphasis, and then the other is a uh, nominative masculine ending. So we have a similar word used in 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17, and this is the word ex. See, that's a Greek preposition for out of, uh, ex artizo. So it's very similar in meaning, and it has to do with the, with the idea of completely or thoroughly equipping someone uh, for their task. So this, what, does, what is it that thoroughly equips us for our task as believers? It is the Word of God. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for doctrine, which means teaching. Now, teaching covers a range of things, too. Often in modern Christianity, the word doctrine has been narrowed to just refer to the theological concepts. But in the way the Bible uses the word doctrine, it's teaching you everything from how to think to how to live. It includes the whole realm of understanding that there's no such thing as just purely abstract theology, but everything that we understand, though it may seem abstract, has practical implications for how we think and how we live. So all Scripture is breathed out by God, and it's profitable for teaching or or profitable for uh, uh, instruction, uh, for reproof. That means that God is going to step on our toes. He's going to say, no, you're doing it wrong. We live in a world today where nobody likes to be told they're wrong, and we have a lot of people who as soon as they hear somebody say that their opinions, that their beliefs, that their lifestyle is wrong, where their first thing they're going to do is say you're a racist because racism now covers everything. The term's really changed its meaning. And the next thing they're going to do is say something that you're a bully or that you are this or that, and... Uh, yet the reality is we're all sinners. That's a problem with the modern thinking of Western civilization is it's grounded on the idea that human beings are perfectible, that human beings can be improved to perfection. And if an individual human being can be uh, brought to perfection, so can society. And you see all of these college kids, college-age kids, protesting and demonstrating, and they're angry. And what they're angry about is that, number one, they can't get their way, and they have to work, and that somehow if they're irresponsible and they suffer the consequences, that that's unfair. And they're also, uh, they're also angry about the fact that, that they want perfection and there's no perfection. 
They don't see it quite that way, but that's what's really going on. They, they have assumed that somehow it's a utopic world and everybody can get 100 because they grew up going through various athletic uh, contests, whether it's baseball or t-ball or soccer, and everybody got a participation prize no matter what they did. So they, they don't understand that we do things wrong, and when we do things wrong, there are consequences. And God tells us when we're doing things wrong, but he tells us what the correction is so that we can improve. But we're never going to become perfect. We're never going to become flawless because we live with a sin nature that even though we've trusted Christ and we're saved, we're still corrupt. We still have a sin nature that tempts us, and we still enslave ourselves to that sin nature. That's what Romans 6 talks about. So we have to learn to be corrected, and that means humility. So if you don't want to be corrected, you're just as arrogant as you can be, and your life is going to be an absolute miserable mess because arrogance always produces uh, problems and heartache and self-destruction. So God reproves us through his word, and he corrects us, and then he gives us instruction in righteousness, how we are to think and live in conformity to righteousness. But where do we get a standard of righteousness? We only get it from God. God's word tells us what that absolute standard is, and there's an absolute standard for right and wrong. And so often today you have people, they don't want to believe that there's a right and a wrong. And so when they hear somebody like me get in the pulpit and say there are absolute rights and absolute wrongs, they say, no, 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 you're wrong. <laughs> well, where do you get this idea of wrong? What's your standard? Where did that come from? See, they don't understand that, that they can't even think in terms of right and wrong categories without affirming that there is an ultimate standard. And so in their attempts to discredit God, they are demonstrating that they can't even think without using God's terms. So we have instruction in righteousness. Why? The ultimate purpose is that the man of God, that's not a sexist term, that is referring to anyone who is a believer, any human being who is a believer, the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped. So there's our word. We're not thoroughly equipped for every good work, which is tantamount to ministry, which is what we're studying in our passage. We're not equipped for that unless we have gone through the process of learning what the Bible teaches, uh, being reproved, being corrected, and being instructed. All of that has to happen before we realize that we're thoroughly equipped. It's the Bible that equips us. The Bible teaches us and trains us how to think so we can learn how to live. Now we go back to our passage in Ephesians 4.12 and we read uh, that this is for the equipping of the saints. So that comes from the word of God. And then the next prepositional phrase uses the word uh, ministry, which I did not get put in there. The word for ministry is uh, diakonos. Our diakonia, rather, diakonia, D-I-A-K-O-N-I-A, and it means service or ministry. Now, a lot of translations use the word ministry, but what does ministry mean? How are you going to find out the meaning of the word ministry? 
Well, most people are going to go look at a dictionary, whether it's online or uh, whether it's in a hardback. And if you look up, like, for example, in the Concise Oxford English Dictionary, there is as a subset of the third meaning the phrase spiritual service to others provided by the Christian church. But everything else in the previous main definitions, one, two, and three, before you get that sub point, relates to, for example, uh, number one, Collins English Dictionary is a little more expansive, says that this word refers to the profession or duties of a minister of religion. Well, that certainly is not what this passage is talking about because that buys into the idea that there's a distinction between the, uh, the, 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 the minister, the profession of ministry and the laity. So there's this artificial distinction between the clergy, they do the ministry, and the laity, and they are, they, they're passive. And that's what you have in a, a, a lot of uh, sacramental churches. Uh, that is how they, they handle this. We'll look at this in more detail in a minute. So that's the first de- definition, also the performance of these duties. Second is ministers of religion or government ministers considered collectively. Well, that doesn't apply. Third, the tenure of a minister. So the ministry may refer to how long he is in his position. So if you think of a minister of state or a foreign minister or something like that, then the minister would, ministry would refer to his time period in office. And... Uh, fourth, a government department headed by a minister or the buildings of such a department. That covers the gamut in Collins' English Dictionary, and Webster's 11th Collegiate Dictionary basically says the same thing. But none of those, except for that one subcategory in the concise Oxford English Dictionary, even comes close to how the word uh, ministry is used in Ephesians 4.12. That's why I always say you have to consult your dictionaries before you decide how to translate a Greek or Hebrew word into English because you have to figure out does that English word really mean what the original language means. And in this case, that's pretty pathetic. Um, The meaning of the Greek word has the idea of performing a service and so this is how it should be equipped, that, uh, how it should be understood, that equipping of the saints for the work of service. We have various ways in which this word is, is handled and, and used in the Scripture. For example, in Acts 6.4, it is used of the ministry of the word. So ministry can relate to the teaching of the word, the explanation of the word. In Acts 20.24, 20, Uh, Paul says, but none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus Christ. So that refers to his commissioning as an apostle and the responsibilities to communicate, for example, the mystery doctrine that now there was a new entity, new spiritual entity called the church that was made up of Jew and Gentile alike. That ministry, teaching that, communicating that is uh, what he received from the Lord Jesus Christ, the commissioning to his uh, uh, apostolic ministry. 
1 Corinthians 12.5 says there are differences of ministries but the same Lord. That's in the context of describing various spiritual gifts. So that gets us back to all of the individual believers have different ministries related to their spiritual gifts. 2 Corinthians 5.18 states, Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us, that's referring to all believers, the ministry of reconciliation. That is teaching people the scriptures that God in Christ has reconciled us to himself. That is the ministry of of, of evangelism. So the word has a general sense of spiritual service to those who are in the body of Christ, to other believers, and it ranges from evangelism to teaching the word to meeting specific physical or spiritual needs. The next word is the word edifying. And this is the Greek word oikotome, which I did not put on the slide. Oikotome, which has the idea sometimes of a literal building or construction of a literal building, or it can refer to a spiritual building. For example, in Ephesians 2.21 we read, in whom the whole building being fitted together, whole building, building is oikotome, being fitted together grows, it's a living organism, and it grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In 1 Corinthians 3.9, we read, For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. So that's what we are. We're all part of that building, which is the body of Christ. So we see that three things are Mentioned in relation to the mission or the purpose of these gifted leaders. And for our purposes, that's the uh, evangelist or pastor teacher. So we see that it is for the equipping of the saints. What's for the equipping of the saints? Let's just use pastor teacher. The gifted leader of a pastor teacher is given for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So what we see here, as I pointed out earlier, is that you have three English words, for. Now the preposition for in English has a range of meanings just like it does in, in Greek. But in this passage, you don't, they're not the same word. But in this first option of interpretation, that's ignored. That's part of the problem with it. But this is a typical way in which this has been taught and understood. That is, he himself gave pastor teachers to do three things. And notice how I have them all equal to one another. And that technical word for that is they are coordinate. They are equal to one another. They're doing these, these three things. The pastor teacher does three things. He is going to equip the saints... He's going to do the work of ministry, and he's going to edify the body of Christ. That is typically of what you have in uh, a hierarchical church where there's a distinction between clergy and laity. That's how they will distinguish it. It is that these gifted leaders do these three things. Well, what do the people in the pew do? Well, they sit there and listen. They participate. They're passive. Now, the problem with that is that when we look at the entirety of the rest of this paragraph down to verse 16, 
you see at the very end that it's talking about what every joint supplies and that every part does its share. So it clearly, the scriptures clearly teach that the body of Christ is not separated into these categories of clergy and laity. Now, we'll use the word layman every now and then just to describe a non-professional minister, but that's uh, in the classical use of that term, that doesn't work. So this is a problem in the way that this this is handled, and so it, it creates... Uh, it, it's based on two problems. It, it translates the, the Greek prepositions. There's two different ones as if they're all the same thing. And then there's no and. And is a coordinating conjunction, okay? There are several coordinating conjunctions in English. You have the word and and for and nor and but or yet. These are all coordinating conjunctions, now, if you're of a certain age, you may remember Sesame Street and Conjunction Junction, where you're joining two railroad, uh, you know, two train cars together. They're they're equal, and that's how this is treated. But there's no and to coordinate them. There's no conjunction to form the junction. Okay, you ought to get that from. All right, so that's that's the first option, and it's got problems. But I also want you to note that there's a comma in the New King James, but that's not how it was in the original King James. So the King James Version of 1900, you do realize that when you talk to people who believe in King James only, you have to ask the question, which King James Version? Because it was revised many times before the one they have in their hand. And if you go back and try to read the original, it's extremely difficult. But up here on the slide is the way it was translated in uh, originally, for the perfecting of the saints, comma, for the work of the ministry, comma, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Three purposes, and so that's diagrammed that way. And... Um, now, who translated the King James Version? The Anglican clergy of England. They were a hierarchical church that believed in a distinction between the clergy and the laity. So this shows their theology, and it's evident by where they put the commas. So you just thought commas were just something there to bother you in, from seventh grade on. Uh, there's a distinction there. Okay, so then we look at uh, these prepositions. So the first one is the uh, Greek preposition pros, which points to the purpose of the giving of these gifted leaders. Then you have the second preposition, which is ace, and that indicates an immediate purpose for the gift giving the, of these gifted offices. Now I'll run through these next two. You're, the, the, the nuances here are pretty esoteric, but they're significant. And the reason they're significant is it affects how you understand what happens in the local church. And that's not something that's going to show up in a doctrinal statement. It's going to show up in how they do what they do in the church. And see, what's important is not only what we believe, but how we put into practice what we believe. And very few churches do. Methodology is just as important as the actual understanding of, of, of doctrine. 
and how you do what you do is as important. A right thing done in a wrong way is wrong. A wrong thing done in a wrong way is wrong. The only thing that's right is when a right thing is done in a right way. And methodology is, is critical. Now, in this second option, what we see here is that you have the, they, they recognize the distinction that that first uh, prepositional phrase for the ultimate purpose of equipping the saints is stating the ultimate purpose, okay? And then the next two are seen as coordinate because they're even with each other. But what's missing there? No coordinating conjunction. You don't have an and, for, nor, so, so any of the coordinating conjunctions. So that, that has problems. So basically what this, what this would mean is that uh, Christ provided gifted people for the immediate purpose of the work of ministry and the building up of Christ, while the ultimate and final purposes of the gifts is for the work of ministry and the edifying of the body of Christ. And those would be seen as, uh, as coordinate or equal. Then we have the third option, which tries to recognize a little more of this distinction. And this would put, uh, for the immediate purpose of the work of ministry in connection and supporting the first, uh, the first purpose. And then, then you'd have your second purpose down here. So he gave pro- pastors and teachers for the purpose of equipping the saints for the immediate purpose of the work of ministry, and secondly, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So it's the pastor-teacher who is given for the edifying of the body of Christ. Again, you have a problem with that, but this is evidenced in translations like the NRSV and the NASB of 77. Uh, And the way they do that is the way in which they translate here that it's to equip, showing that ultimate purpose, and then for the building up of the body of Christ is handled a little differently. It's it's real. Uh, you may not see that. I had to work through this and read a couple of things, and everybody was citing the same uh, distinctives in the translation, but it gets kind of obtuse. So we'll just go to the correct interpretation, which is the fourth option. And here you should have for the equipping of the saints. That's the immediate purpose. The immediate purpose for the pastor is to equip the saints. The first thing he's doing is equipping them for the work of ministry. The result of that is the edification of the body of Christ. So it's a stair step in the way you understand these these uh, prepositions here. And that really changes the way you look at what people do in church, the meeting of the church. The pastor is to equip the saints so that the saints are then able to do the work of ministry, whether it's evangelism, teaching in Sunday school, being involved just as a helper in vacation Bible school, or just in terms of doing uh, ministry to those who are sick, those who are shut in, those who are uh, in the hospital. That's an application of the spiritual gift of mercy. Uh, And all of that then produces edification within the body of Christ. And so we do edify one another. A lot of times people get the idea that all this edification flows just from the teaching of God's word. 
but it also comes from many other aspects, and we are uh, encouraged in Scripture to uh, edify one another just by our presence in church or uh, some other ways. But one of the things that comes across in the third chapter of, of Colossians is when it talks about uh, letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Well, how does that, how does that look? It says by teaching and admonishing one another in hymns, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So that's one of the reasons that we sing what we sing is because there's content there that instructs and encourages others. You look at what 90% of what's sung in most churches doesn't teach or admonish anybody. And so how can you do what the Bible says if what you're singing doesn't teach or admonish anybody? It's worthless to sing those songs, but, oh, that's so important. In fact, what you find today among many young people is that that's the first and most important thing they look for when they go to a church. They want to make sure that it's got the right kind of music and it's on the cutting edge of what other churches are doing instead of trying to ask the question, well, what does the Bible say I should do in church? What is singing supposed to be like? What are the words supposed to be like? And the Bible says a lot about those things, but they're, but they're just ignored. So when we are thinking about selecting a church, you have to ask certain questions and find out what does the Bible say the purpose of a church is, the purpose of the meeting of the church, and what is it that is to take place in my spiritual life as a result of a biblically sound church uh, teaching, teaching the word. So we see that this is a stair step that Christ gave these gifted people, the pastor, teacher, the evangelist, for the immediate purpose of equipping the saints. Once they're equipped and they can witness, they can serve, they can teach, uh, and it's the goal is the work of ministry. And the result of doing the work of ministry is the body of Christ is edified. Now, we look at a couple of other things here. For example, this is the NIV to equip his people for works of service. Notice they took the first one to distinguish it and made it a, a purpose clause there that the purpose of this gift is to equip the saints. That's, that's, that's good. That's viable. And we're to equip his people. I, I have a problem when, when I hear people talk about the people of God. Now, that's accurate. Nothing inaccurate about that. But to people of God today are not the same as the people of God in the Old Testament. The people of God today are the believers in Christ. They're in the body of Christ. They are church-age saints. And so I think it's better to use language that distinguishes church-age believers from those of previous ages. Um, in Ephesians 4.12, in the Williams translation, he expands on it a little bit. He says, for the immediate equip equipment, I think equipping is better, but for the immediate equipping of God's people for the work of service, for the ultimate building up of the body of Christ. Notice he distinguishes the immediate purpose for the distant purpose. And so I've taken a stab at translating this for the immediate purpose of training, I think equipping loses some aspect of the training. For the immediate purpose of training all church-age believers 
to do the work of service toward the ultimate goal of spiritually strengthening the body of Christ, not just West Houston Bible Church, but it has an impact on the entirety of the body of Christ. So what are the implications for church-age believers when you're thinking about choosing or selecting a church? First of all, the local church should understand that the role of the pastor-teacher is to train believers to think, act, and live on the basis of God's Word. He's not a motivator. The motivation comes from learning the Word of God. The Word of God is what provides motivation. It's spiritual growth that provides motivation. The pastor should not be a motivational speaker. That's not his purpose. His purpose is to instruct and to teach the Word of God. So that has to be understood. Uh, he's not a... He's, he's not the administrator. He's not the chief executive officer. He is the trainer. He is the teacher. He is the one who equips the saints by explaining the word of God. Second, the responsibility of each believer then is to devote themselves to being spiritually trained. You know, it's not a lot of fun to try to train somebody when they don't care. You have to, it, there's two sides to this. The pastor is the equipper, the trainer, the teacher, and it's the sheep that are in the pew that need to be responsive and to be trained and to be equipped uh, so that they can become spiritually trained and effective in ministry in their lives. Third, we have to recognize that the local church is not a social, a sociological, or a psychological institution. This is big today. You go to most churches, most Christians, they're operating on the idea that a local church is, a, is really a social institution. It's there for the people to get to know each other and support each other and have a good time together and enjoy the music and the entertainment. That's a social institution. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that the local ch church, by, by God's definition, is an educational institution to train believers in how to think biblically and to remove the false and inaccurate opinions, philosophies, and religious deceptions from our own thinking and our lives. You see, when many of us, I'm making some assumptions there, went to university, we went there in order to get an education, as a byproduct of that, we had, I hope, a decent social life. I had a great social life. It was too much of a social life the first year. <laughs> but I went, was there for an education. And at that time, universities were still focused on providing education for the students. Now, they did some things secondarily to enhance some of the social aspects or rather to keep students from just getting out of control so they would provide, but that was really secondary. The purpose for the existence of these schools was to educate the students. Social things were byproducts of being in that kind of environment. So the local church is an educational institution just like the synagogue you know, when I look at what's going on in especially your, your conservative or um, uh, orthodox uh, synagogues, 
they have a lot of teaching and training that's going on in there in relation to the Torah and in relationship to Judaism and in relationship to the Talmud. It's all focused on education. Do they have a social life? Sure they do. It's not one or the other. It's the order in which they exist. So the local church is an educational institution primarily that has as a secondary benefit a social life. I've been in churches that were always accused of, well, those people, that church is so cold, they never say anything to visitors. And, you know, I probably had a much better social life there than I did at churches that were called fellowship churches that were supposedly emphasizing social life because it was based on a common commonality, which was understanding the Word of God. So we'll come back next time to look at Ephesians 4.13, which says, until that indicates the ultimate goal, we all attain, we have to look at who the all is, it's not all y'all, it's the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. The bottom line is Romans 12.2. And Romans 12, 2 is the verse that that people today ignore. It says, literally, do not be pressed into the mold of the opinions and philosophies of the culture around you. And yet what most churches are doing is they're trying to emulate the culture around them so people don't feel uncomfortable. But the scripture says that, that you've got to not be influenced by the culture around you. Don't be pressed into their mold, but be transformed by the renovation of your thinking in order that your life may give evidence that the will of God is good and acceptable and complete. And the only way to do that is to consistently listen to the word of God being taught so that you can internalize it into your lives. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come together this morning and to uh, study about the meeting of the church and the purpose for the meeting of the church, that this is not about fellowship. It's not how it makes me feel. It is about your word. It is learning your word, being transformed uh, by your word so that we are not uh, conforming ourselves to the spirit of the age, but that we are being transformed to that which is eternal, that is the thinking of Christ. And, Father, we know that today we live in a world that is very different from centuries before where there is such a huge battle and huge conflict. The pressures on young people, the pressures on all Christians to conform so that they're not thought of as being something different and being an oddity is is there. None of us like to be thought of as an oddity, but the world will always think of us as oddities because we believe in a personal, infinite God and because we believe that personal, infinite infinite God has loved us in such a way that he gave his son to die on the cross for our sins. And that sets us apart. So we are saints. We're set apart to you because of our faith in Jesus Christ. And so the saints are to be taught. The saints are to be equipped for the work of the ministry. Father, we pray that anyone listening to this message today, either live or here in person, whatever, that they might recognize that the only way to have eternal life, the only way to have a fullness of life, the only way to have any sense of an abundant life as you, uh, as you uh, designed is that we need to internalize your word. 
But first we have to be saved. We have to trust in Christ as Savior. That's, that's the change point, to reject the world and the worldly religions and to trust in Jesus Christ as the eternal second person of the Trinity who died on the cross for our sins, paid the penalty that by simply trusting in him we have everlasting life. We pray that those who are not saved might clearly understand this and trust in Christ for their salvation. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.